Welcome to the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. You're listening to a new episode of the Founder Pack Podcast, where your host, Brendan Rod, brings startup stories from experienced founders and other functional experts to help current and future founders get inspired and grow their knowledge with quick tactical insights. Knowledge is power, now more than ever. Hey Slater, welcome to the Founder Pack Podcast. Hey Brendan, thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. How's your week going so far? My week's going well, you know. It's a, it's a bit hot and rainy in Boston, but I actually like the rain. Uh, and, you know, it's it's been a pretty nice summer so far. Uh, and, you know, the week the week has been very, very uh, productive. But, you know, the end of the quarter is always, always an exciting. Is there anything keeping you up at night or is that a dumb question for a founder? No, I, you know, I mean, the, the quarter, you know, it's always nice to have your quarterly numbers work out. Uh, you know, I think, thankfully, we're not a public company, so it's not the most important thing in the world. Uh, but, you know, it, it would be nice to have to have a contract or two uh, come in in the next couple of hours, uh, you know, which always seems to happen on the last day. Of the quarter, right? I will for sure pick your brain more on some of those topics later on. But before we dive in, would you mind just sharing a little bit about you, your background and what your company does? Absolutely. So like you said, I'm Slater Victroff. I'm the founder and CTO of Indico. Uh, and Indico really focuses on unstructured data and making a lot of these modern techniques that you hear about being deployed by Google and Facebook accessible to you know, everyone else. Uh, really trying to figure out how that can have an effective impact on knowledge workers' lives. And we have a product really that faces the subject matter expert uh, and allows them to actually take control of sort of the model building process and provide then a really, really high quality data that helps the entire kind of data science and model building. Cool. And sticking with tradition, can you share one fun fact about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I am a member of the Boston Mycological Society. So we go out and forage mushrooms, you know, eating mushrooms. Uh, it's the oldest mycological society in the United States. It's been around for over a uh, hundred years since these. That's super cool. It sounds scary at the same time. Like if you were to eat the wrong mushrooms. Or <laughs> yeah, you, you definitely don't want to eat the wrong ones. <laughs> the, the problem is that the right ones taste so good. Uh, you know, you know what made me feel actually much more comfortable doing it is uh, if you if you learn how to forage for plants you realize that plants are like 10 times more likely to kill you. Like mushrooms, there's a very good, straightforward understanding of like, this one's hard to identify. This one doesn't look like anything else. With plants, it's like, well, if that serration has, you know, like three indentations, then it's deadly and you won't figure out for three days. But if it's got two indentations, then, you know, eat a whole salad of it. It's delicious, right? Uh, and, and I think that's what finally kind of convinced me. So I think it's a lot easier actually to forage for mushrooms safely if you're if you're being very cautious, right? Uh, but you know, you still definitely should should like go with some experienced uh, and figure out what you're doing. But it, it's very possible to do this. <laughs> Um, cool. Thank you for sharing. Let's dive into the show. So we were talking off camera about trending news, the recession and the great resignation. So I would love to hear from you. How has that affected or impacted the way that you do business? Anything you could share with us today? Yeah. So I, I think I will say uh, respectively, uh, 
the great resignation was, you know, not, you know, not a problem for us. You know, I think we invest really, really heavily in our founders. And I, I actually kind of really appreciated that as a moment for, for everyone to really look at, you know, your employees, the people that really make your company what it is and think about what you can do to make sure that they're as successful as possible. So that, you know, that I would say was, you know, positive overall, you know, we didn't have uh, any serious issue. I think, you know, for, for a lot of folks, it does kind of cause that recalibration of how you think about talent, but you know, that was, that was worthwhile, you know, and I think that's, that's necessary as well. Uh, but then the secondary piece, right. And that's kind of the, the unfortunate kind of more recent news then of this, this recession, right. You know, kind of the global impacts, both some of the reverberations from COVID that's still kind of wrecking supply chains, right. A lot of, you know, very strange kind of like trust and pseudo like price gouging issues also with production in the U S right now. Uh, and then you've got that compounded obviously with the and just a lot uh, is a lot of problems altogether. And it, it has a really, really big impact, uh, you know, very specifically on growth stage companies, I think is where it's been most significant. And that is where Indico is. And, you know, it, it has changed, you know, very, very dramatically in the last six months where, you know, six months ago, there was so much money, so much capital. And, and I think, you know, in all fairness, there was too much money, like too much capital valuations were in an absolutely absurd place. And there did need to be uh, some correction. And, you know, that, that's just like one of the other factors that's kind of going into this this perfect spiral. But I mean, you know, f- folks have seen just, a uh, you know, Tiger had almost 40% of their portfolio wiped out. And, you know, that's not even exceptional. But to see that kind of transformation happen throughout tech stocks in such a short period of time has caused a real, real cool down in the market. Um, I think that smaller companies are actually in in uh, an all right and better spot right now. Because, you know, on the seed side of things, right, uh, maybe even going into some of the like earlier A's, the impact hasn't been as significant. But on the growth side, right, you know, things have just kind of like turned off, you know, people, people have gone home uh, for the summer, more or less. Uh, And I think that companies that, you know, and, you know, it's impacted Indico. Absolutely. You know, we had a, a, you know, thankfully, a relatively small round of layoffs, but we did have, we did have a small round of layoffs, um, which is, which is not fun. Um, you know, and we we hope that this is a very temporary kind of thing, and then a handful of months, you know, we'll be we'll be out of it, and the macro economy will kind of correct it. Uh, but you know, I, I don't have a crystal ball. You know, who who knows? Uh, who who's who's to say? But I I'm right now optimistic. I, I appreciate you sharing that, and maybe if you don't mind me diving deeper, but I'm super curious to hear how you handled the layoffs because i think there's a lot for founders to gain from hearing how other founders are doing it with humility and supporting those people how you manage that process if you're happy to talk about it yeah no i absolutely and it, and it is a it is a good thing uh to talk about and, and i think maybe one of the things i'll also provide for context to give a sense of how we think about things as a management team and how we traditionally approach things is to look at, uh, you know, the original outset of COVID, right? Because I think that was also a time when you saw vast swaths of layoffs, right? You saw people totally freezing hiring, right? You saw a lot of things there and you had this, you know, man, really, you know, there was this change in the capital markets, right? And you had to show that your business, you know, was operating differently. And we didn't let go of anyone. 
right? Uh, you know, we we change things really dramatically in other ways. You know, we you know cut some marketing spend. We you know suspended a, a couple of benefits, right? So we were very creative in where else we could find the money that we needed to extend the runway and kind of build that resiliency into the business. So I, I think that's the first thing is you know if all if at all possible, right? Try not to do that. Um, you know, and, and I think that there are a lot of things that you can be creative with, especially if you're willing to be open with your team and kind of be like, Hey guys, like, I'm sorry, this sucks. But also, you know, if we can trade, you know, 401k matching for not having to let anyone go and like, we'll bring it back in six months, you know, and just making them a part of that decision-making process. Right. I just think it's, it's a really you know good, good way to get through something. But, you know, this impact obviously has been a lot more dramatic, right? A lot more severe. Thankfully, Indico is in a much better position, I think, than a lot of the companies. We, we didn't raise at some insane valuation, right? We're not burning ridiculous amount of money, right? So the correction that we had to make was a little bit more minor. But I think it was, again, you know, I think that, you know, when you have to bring costs down, right? Layoffs are always the first thing that people jump to and think about. But I think that it's really, really important also to realize that you can hurt your company or you can help your company, depending on how you do it. And you're often kind of, you're, you know, you're walking this very, very fine line and, and just, you know, kind of recognizing that objectively is that if you cut too far, right, it's not going to have its intended effect. And you're not just trying to like batten down the hatches and like, you know, go into hibernation, right? You can't do that, right? You can't have that mentality. So instead, I think the right mentality is, you know, do the math you need to figure out how you can cut once, have that be, you know, all you need to do, be creative with combining, you know, you know, layoffs on the one hand, but that that should be kind of the the hardest lever to use, the last lever to use, right? Find what you can in terms of, you know, spending salary increases, right? You know, if there are some some extra benefits that might make sense, that might save some money, some products that you're spending more on, you know, some some things that were maybe more growth oriented that you can cut back on, you know, maybe even software because, uh, you know, once you're a certain size and, you know, Indico is not huge, you know, uh, you know, a few, few dozen employees, but that stuff does really start to add up, uh, especially, you know, when you've got money coming in and, and it's really more of this cash balancing. Yeah. I, I saw an interesting presentation on the all in podcast. I'm not sure if you're familiar with David Sachs and he has three other hosts, can't remember all their names, but they had this graph where they laid it out according to what they called the death spiral. So what it meant is yes. if, if you cut... That's exactly what I'm talking about. If actually. you cut too late, you hit this death spiral, which you can never recover from. If you cut at the right time, you can actually accelerate out of the recession and come out strong. So I just thought it's interesting to put that into context with what you were saying about like making the right cuts and balancing your cuts. I think that also ties into that death spiral equation. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, you, you, the worst possible thing is for people to then have it, you know, hanging over them, always wondering, you know, is something else going to happen? Right. You know, like, is this going to happen again in, in a handful of months? Right. Because then you just like, you can't, you can't get back to building a good company. So, um, yeah, I, I think it's it's really, really good advice. You know, don't don't die by a thousand cuts, right? You know, it is, it, I mean, unfortunately, it is kind of like a, 
you know, like sever the the limb to like save the body kind of thing. So it, it, it's not easy by any means, but I, I do think that's the right. Thing. So with that being said, what is the trajectory of this recession? How long, based on your circle of influence and trust, what are your investors and other founders telling you, advising you on how to come out strong, how to weather the storm? So, I, I mean, I think the, the generic lessons are always kind of the same of, you know, you have to improve, you know, your burn ratio, right, to your ARR ratio, you know, grow fat, grow faster, you know, more cheaply, build a more efficient business, right, is always kind of the very, very sort of simple answer. I, I think that maybe to the first piece, and this is what's actually really tough, is that it's not that deals are impossible now. Right. But it is that the market has pulled back really, really dramatically. Right. The valuations are really, really bad. You know, there's a lot of fire sales and a lot of companies like way out over their skis. And I think one of the things that's so strange is that you've got so many different things all happening at the same time that there is a lot more uncertainty around this than any of my experience is limited. I'm still relatively young. But I think when you compare it to kind of, you know, COVID or even, you know, 2008, um, people really don't understand what this is because there's so many weird things pulling in different directions. So, you know, I I would call it because there is a generic belief that things will get better. People, you know, often are like, yeah, you know, probably in six months, things will either get better or they won't. Um, But I do think one of the, one of the benefits is that before this downturn, these funds did all raise a whole bunch of money, right? So there is a lot of dry power powder, right, sitting in their coffers. They cannot hold on to it forever, right? So there is there is some kind of time balance there. Um, but then I think the question of how that will intersect with a macro situation that might still be complex is, um, I mean, it's anyone's best guess, honestly. Um, I, I hope that we are at the bottom now. I think we are at the bottom now but I am not sure we're at the bottom now. And then last question around current news and trends. There's been a lot of speak lately about this new acronym and metric called net revenue retention, NRR. What are your thoughts on that? Have you leaned into that? Just curious to hear what you think about this metric and how are you applying it if you are? Yeah, I mean, for us, NRR is absolutely the number one most important metric. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe it's it's fair that it may vary from industry to industry how important that is. But I think especially if you are uh, like us, you know, a deep tech company delivering something very close to the bleeding edge where, you know, maybe there's a lot of snake oil, maybe success rates aren't particularly good, right? I think that NRR does such a good job of capturing and and kind of sussing apart, you know, who's delivering something real and the customers like it and they're coming back for more, right? And who is, you know, not able to retain their customers, right? Who, you know, signed a really big deal with someone at the end of 12 months, they weren't able to deliver, right? Um, I think I think maybe especially in B2B, maybe more enterprisey scenarios, um, just because I think that and a lot of people don't necessarily realize this, the art of getting a contract signed uh, in an enterprise is like very weirdly divorced from the act of delivering on that contract. 
Um, and so especially if you're looking at, say, a new offering out of a big established company, you know, they can go sign a whole bunch of deals, get a whole bunch of revenue coming in for the first year. But, uh, you know, whether those people are renewing, whether they, you know, want more of the product, you know, whether they've got a business model that allows them to, you know, continue to opt in. Uh, you know, th- those are all, you know, very difficult and challenging things that I think NRR captures really well. Uh, but I mean, also our NRR was 149%. So I am, you know, totally biased. <laughs> so the the question I've been sort of pushing back on is that I don't feel customers are like going to sleep at night saying, how can I spend more money with my vendors? So I'm curious to hear from you how you apply NRR in your business? Yeah. So I think there's two things I would say to that. I think number one is I think that's part of the reason why NRR is specifically best applied in enterprise setting. Um, And and I do actually think that that is is pretty key, right? Because, um, and and I'll use like the the tiered kind of version as a really good example, right? Because if you're selling that purely as solo licenses, right? Um, chances are that's actually something much more like a B2C business. And I actually totally agree. I think there's probably very different more activity, right? Maybe like spread and reach base metrics that are going to be a lot more relevant in a case like that, right? But I think it's very, very different from say a B2B business, right? Where I think one of the things that's also really, really critical in the businesses of today is that, especially I guess if you're talking about the larger side of businesses, is that they are changing the way that they're buying, right? Um, And so the thing is that they need a way to test your product, right? Without being at full deployment, because, you know, if, if you're talking about, especially on the scale of like, even a fortune like 5,000 company, right, even towards the small end of that, right, there's a lot of things that, you know, they're theoretically going to want to do with your product. So what I would say is like NRR inside of an organization effectively serves the role of, you know, like that virality, that spread, that like activity metric in more of a B2C context. Um, and, and so, but but I, I mean, I, I completely agree with your point that it is, I mean, it is not a customer-centric metric, right? I mean, it is not meant to be that. It is explicitly a company-centric metric that determines, you know, are you delivering success to your customers in such a way that they are spreading the use of it? But I think the thing that is implicit there, right, and the thing that would be, you know, even even better to present, but I think very few companies uh, are in a position to, to present something like this, is looking at kind of the marginal ROI you deliver across that NRR. Because that's the thing, right, is like if your NRR is going up, but then your ROI uh, percentage is going down as the upsells, right, then then like, you know, that's that's like not good. Then, then you're like Oracle, right? So I think the thing that's really, really clear is like it's got to be like a teach to fish model, right? It should be supporting, uh, you know, something that is a land and expand business model, right? But I also think that it's extremely hard to make anything else work, uh, you know, c- certainly in kind of a Fortune 500 enterprise today. Right. You know, long gone are the days where you can like call someone up and sell a $10 million contract. Right. You've got to have like a step in and a path for them. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense and a topic that we could definitely touch on many times. In SaaS metrics, you could get a PhD in, right? Many PhDs, (laughs) really. Yeah. It's an interesting one to keep an eye on. And like you said, it's a great one to have as some sort of north star for the company as long as it's not implied that it's a customer centric model because i just don't see it that way no no it's not right it's it's uh it's success centric right i think that's really what it measures like are you 
are you delivering value, right? But, you know, you could theoretically even have like a, a terrible user experience and maybe all of your users hate you and you could still theoretically have a higher NRR. So I, I agree very much. So I think that, you know, is something you'd mention. Cool. Are you ready to dive into the rapid fire questions? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So how this works is most founders either have one or two superpowers or they're generalists. So to set the stage, so you answer the questions through the right lens, what would you say is your superpower or superpowers as a founder? Is it like product, operations, sales, marketing, hiring? Where do you see yourself? That, that, that's, so I, I have a more literal superpower that I'm known for, um, which is... Um, being able to stay up for an extra 24 hours at any given moment. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, my, my, so I will say my superpower is being able to straddle everything from the farthest reaches of like the most deep technical, like I, I read more research than most researchers. Um, and I can straddle all the way from there to, you know, business speak, Right. And, and talking in kind of very, very simplified terms and analogies. And, you know, I think that's something pretty, pretty unique is I, I think I can really make a lot of those complex ideas understandable. Okay. So I'm going to let you choose the lens to which you answered the rapid fire question. So first one, what has been your biggest aha moment across functions as a founder? Uh, for us, it was when we, uh, the first iteration of our product, uh, we took documents in, we turned them into raw text, we put them in front of people and we asked them to tag them. And we had experts who had been doing these processes for 30 years come to us and say, this is not possible. Like, what on earth are you talking about? And it turns out, you know, like as in a computer scientist's brain, I'm like, documents are text. That's what they are. Um, and it turns out that the visual representation, the human experience, right, was so important, right, that it literally became impossible without that additional information. And, and I guess the lesson from that is just to never discount the user experience. And I think more often than not, um, you know, no one wants to be a Betamax, right? Cool. And what's been the biggest misconception for you? Uh, in 2012... Uh, I told one of my professors, the war is over, deep learning lost. Uh, and that is, to this day, the most wrong that I have ever been. What have been some pitfalls or failures that you would like to share with other founders so that they could avoid making the same mistake? I think one of the hardest things as a founder is to balance building and leading and managing. And to understand when you personally building something is helpful and when you personally building something is starting to hold the company back uh, and realizing that it is your obligation, right, as a leader of the company, regardless of what other job functions you are, because if you are a founder, you are a leader, right, even if you're an individual contributor manager, it doesn't matter, right, um, you have to give people a chance come up to the skills that you've acquired over time, right? And if you just step in and do it for them, you're robbing them from that chance and you're guaranteeing that you're going to have to do it next time. Can you share a recent success that you would like to share with other founders? Gosh, wow. There, there, there were a lot. I, I'm trying to think. There are a couple of executives we've hired recently that are really, really amazing. A 
couple of customers we've closed that are Okay, so you know, I think that the the one that I want to highlight is a product release we just made, uh, which is our five three product release. Uh, and, and not to go you know super far into it or make it like really pitchy, but you know, suffice it to say, it has a series of features that I kind of sketched out on a napkin, you know, probably four years ago, right? And I, I think what I you know really want to say in kind of that lens is like, stay patient. Uh, and especially if you're working on something very exciting, very new, and on the deep tech side of things, right? You know, it might be years out. It might be way, way, way harder than you ever imagined. But you know, if you if you develop the right intuition, right, you keep your head down and keep executing, you will eventually. Awesome. And last question: What has been your greatest challenge to date, and how did you solve it? If you did solve it. I could give you the greatest one I've solved and the greatest one I haven't solved yet, uh, but they might both be uh, research problems. So I'll say maybe maybe the the toughest thing that we have, I think, a good prototypical solution for, but you know, check back in a month to see whether it's really solved it, is how to really do R and D effectively uh, in a way that bridges the gap between experimentation and production. And I think this is an issue that a lot of companies have is. How do I actually do experiments effectively, but make sure these are things that can get out to production, right, in a timely manner? How do I not end up with like a lot of experiments sitting on the floor, right, and then a lot of product problems, you know, related to the thing we did nine months ago? And so what we've done is we've implemented this idea of SWAT teams, where uh, you know product sets the success metric, and then we coalesce a group of folks that's R and D and it's engineering and it's product, right, and you know, kind of all together. That are then responsible for developing a prototype, getting user feedback on it, right, and then eventually, you know, you know, involving uh, more of the engineering team and getting the thing out into production. But having that consistent group of stewards that kind of bring it through and actually are capable of autonomously executing on a lot of it uh, is is a model I've got a lot. Awesome, thank you so much. And as we wrap up here today, is there anything else you would like to share? Anything of your choice? Founding a company is. Really, really hard. Uh, I, I guess just read the Misfits poem as many times as you possibly can. Uh, anytime you're feeling down, just remember the reason that we do this uh, isn't because we thought it was going to be easy, uh, but because we thought that we could change the world. And you know, if you keep at it, right, you really do have a chance. Uh, maybe it's not a big chance, but you know, a small chance is enough. There's a quote, and it's like. Everything is the way it is today because someone made it that way. Sorry if I butchered your quote, Chris, but <laughs> that, that no, that's actually yeah. that's great. I I love that. Um, I, I think one of the things that's one of the you know an incredibly humbling experience that I sometimes like to do when I'm just out is you look at random knickknacks, random pieces. Like, yeah, this is a little weird, but I've got like a razor blade here, right? But just thinking about how many processes and how many people like someone had to build the machine and like smelt the metal and mine the ore right just to make you know that little thing uh you know there's a book called the toaster project where someone tries to make a toaster that i think uh, emphasizes this to a t but you know it's a highly highly interconnected world and even the most trivial things are sitting on you know centuries of innovation Well, I, I really appreciate your time, and I'm glad we got the technical issues <laughs> solved, and we got this one recorded, done, and dusted. So thank you so much, Slater. It was a 
a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. If any other founders would like to connect with you, reach out, what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, so I just started a Substack, oh, uh, cool. but you can also follow me uh, on Twitter, SL8RV. Uh, also reach out on LinkedIn, or you can ask me a question for And I hope we'll see you maybe one day in our community of founders at the Founder Pack too. So thank you so much again, Slater. Have a great one. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Founder Pack podcast with Brendan Rod, part of the ITSB Magazine Podcast Network. If you learned something new and this podcast made you think, then share the channel and itspmagazine.com with your friends, family, and colleagues. If you represent a company and wish to associate your brand with our conversations, sponsor one or more of our podcast channels. We hope you will come back for more stories and follow us on our journey.